We bought foreclosures and didn't negotiate short sales with banks. We bought houses with mold. We bought houses with a bunch of rats in them. I mean, like you name it, like we've kind of tried it and some of it we got burned on, but other times we learned how to do something that other people didn't know how to do. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Yo, yo, what's up, Justin? Not much, man. Just pumped for today's show. I am super pumped for today's show because we have Coach Carson, and he just drops knowledge bombs left and right. <laughs> yeah, this guy's story's awesome. I mean, he starts out in college, realizes he's not up for the rat race, and just starts this real estate empire out of nowhere. But Justin, you and I cannot do his story justice. So we start off the interview by asking Chad, what was the beginning of your money journey like? What first got you inspired into looking at real estate? Enjoy the show. Well, I mean, I actually had really super negative experiences with the real estate. I don't know if I've talked about that much before, but I, I was fortunate and unfortunate enough. To, like my dad had some rental properties when I was in middle school and he was just sort of, sort of like a lot of people just kind of dabbling in it and getting into it. And, and so like, you know, I was just your typical like suburban 11, 12 year old kid. And my brother was a few years younger and he would take us out to this property he just bought. And it was just like nasty, like had a refrigerator that's full of like deer meat in the middle of the summer and like yeah, rats in the backyard and like just piles of trash in the house. Like he had bought it and somebody had just abandoned this house. And so like he drops me off and my brother off of this house. It was like, all right, guys, um, I'll be back in three hours. And you guys have that refrigerator cleaned out and bag up all this trash. And we were like, what, what is this? Like who would ever buy this nasty house? And, and so we were just kind of, we were down on real estate as snotty little 11 and 11 year old kids. But, um, the thing was, like, at some point, I was majoring in biology in college. I played football, and I, but I just I don't know when it was. Like, sometime during college, I was it sort of twitched. I was like, all right, wait a minute. I started looking at the path that most people were taking. Had a lot of friends applying to med school. Had friends like getting in these you know business jobs and like, oh man, look, I'm making 70, 80 grand a year doing this thing. And for me though, I was like, I don't know if I want to go into this like this kind of rat race, this chain you know chain of like one thing after another. Like I've been doing that in school. I've been you know, gone to college. I think I just want to do something different. And so it really didn't start with like me wanting to get in real estate. It sort of started with that itch of like, man, I just, I don't know that I can get in this box, <laughs> this, this career box that everybody's trying to put me in. And so I just started looking around like, all right, what can I do? And again, fortunately I had some family who was in real estate. Like my dad had all these books on his shelf. So I didn't, you know, poor college kid. I didn't have any money like to go learn anything. And the internet wasn't that big at that <laughs> point, showing my age a little bit. So, uh, I just picked up picked up some books off a shelf and started reading about it and thought, all right, I you know I think I can do this. Wow, I mean that's hugely introspective and brave just to decide that you're going to go out there, go completely against the grain, and just avoid this typical rat race that we all get stuck in. This at age like 21, I mean, how did you build up enough confidence and trust in yourself to take what was got to be a scary leap into real estate? I mean, how did you deal with or accept the risk? I mean, it's a good question. And, you know, I think a lot of people share that sentiment. It's like, how, how am I going to do this? Whether it's a side hustle, a business or real estate where you're actually trying to live off the income. And like for me, I think I had the benefit of not having much to lose at that point. Like I, I just gotten out of college 
And I, I thought I had a lot going for me. Like I'd gotten pretty good grades in college. I didn't have any student debt because I got a football scholarship. So here I am like with my car free and clear and a thousand bucks in the bank. And I'm thinking, man, I got it good. You know, like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't need a lot of money. I, you know, I could go sleep in the back of my car with my Toyota Camry uh, velvet seats or whatever you call those things. <laughs> and so like, I, I guess I, was, I didn't feel like I had a lot to lose. And that was a part of the psychology of how I was able to kind of go for it because every step of the way in real estate investing and business and entrepreneurship, somebody told me this idea of you always want to try to, to do something where you can protect your downside. If you can know what your worst case scenario is, and my friend actually called this like a free roll of the dice. Like you always want to be like playing on, like if you're going to Vegas, I don't really do gambling, but like if you can be rolling dice on the house's money, that's where you want to be. And so like what I was trying to do was like, all right, yeah, worst case scenario, I know what I can do. I can like sleep in my friend's like spare bedroom. I can sleep in my car. And I wasn't taking any huge risk, even though it seemed like I was because I was foregoing like the possibility of getting a lot of income in these other jobs. I wasn't going to med school, but like for the first year, I really didn't make much money at all. But the, the thing was, I was able, I, I protected my downside, you know, had a little bit of saved money. And so it just, it allowed me to have that confidence to just say, all right, I'm just going to go for it. And even though I know it's going to be hard at first, I'm just going to like struggle through it, push through it because I wasn't afraid of like, of taking a chance. And so that, that was me as, as a 23 year old with not a lot to lose. Like if it were me with a two kids, a five and a seven year old kid and, you know, having a little bit more a mortgage payment, like, you know, it'd be totally different. So I, I get that like, everybody's got their own place. And so I just think we all need to find a way, if you're going to be an entrepreneur or an investor, to try to protect your downside. Like, Don't take a chance that's going to put your family out on the street. But at the same time, if you can find a way to start a business with a little bit of money, with you know, 100 bucks, with using your time and hustle instead of having to risk a bunch of money, I think that's the way to go. So Chad, I just want to kind of stop you there and have you hop back a little bit. So you've talked about starting with very little bit amount of money, but kind of from a philosophical point of view. So could you get back to a more granular level? Like how did you actually, uh, how did you acquire a rental property with $1,000 or less? I'm sure other people are wondering this because it's not exactly intuitive and you don't hear about these types of strategies every day. Right, yeah. And so I, I didn't buy a rental property up front. That's one part of it. So like I was, I was actually flipping houses, hustling to go find deals. The way it evolved for me, it took about three or four years before I had some cash saved up to actually do a rental property. And so what I would do, like when I first started, I was the person who took one little piece of the real estate business. Like I just figured out how to go out and hustle and go in the neighborhoods and look for vacant houses and beat up, you know, repair houses. And I would just find those little deals. And all I would do is just kind of like point them out to other investors. And these other investors had the money, they had the capital, the credit, they had the know-how. Like I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. All I did was learn how to go find them and like do some basic numbers on how to analyze what a good deal was. And then I would bring that deal to them and I would make a little fee. And they call that in the South where I grew up, you know, they call that like a bird dog, like where you actually like point out deals for other people. Like I didn't know what to do with it. Like once I got it, but I was just like a, a deal finder. And, you know, they have those in every business. Like real estate is one way to do it. But, you know, if, if you can go out and find deals that are good deals and whatever you're doing, there's a way to make money. And, and I didn't have to use my own capital. Like I was able to leverage the expertise and capital and everything else of other people. Well, I got to think we've got some listeners out there who might want to try their chops at being one of these bird dogs. But I imagine that they have a tough time, you know, finding a taker for the actual deal. So how'd you get your foot in the door? I mean, with a community that just allowed you to broker these deals and how did you make yourself reputable in their eyes as someone, again, in their early 20s? Yeah, I love that question because it's exactly right. Like you're 22 years old. I remember my own situation like, crap, I'm here. I'm getting out of college. Who am I to go find these deals and do this? 
And, and so to me, that part of that boldness that I was talking about earlier was just the idea that, hey, I'm just going to go up to people and talk to them as if I got something like I, I'm, I'm gonna, just going to bring it. And and so like I would go specifically in real estate, like where I would start and where I started was going to like networking meetings. Like if you go in biggerpockets.com and that's which is the big networking site for real estate investing. And you just start networking with people there and say, hey, you know, I'm wherever town where, where you're in, like I'm in South Carolina. Like if you were in the upstate of South Carolina, you'd say, I'm in the upstate of South Carolina. I'm 22 years old. Here's what I'm doing every week. You like to start telling stories about what you're doing, going out and looking for properties and what, what you're looking for, how you're doing it. And there'll be some person, I just, I almost guarantee you, if you do that enough through online networking and through in-person networking, there's going to be some person who's more experienced. It might be like somebody like me who's like, man, I, I appreciate that hustle and that dude. Like that, that guy's doing exactly what I did. And I'm going to be somebody who like me, I'm 38 years old. I'm a little bit more lazy, like ambitiously than I was when I first started hustling. And I'm going to see that 22-year-old and be like, man, like, all right, I, I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm just going to kind of talk to him a little bit. And I'll start reaching out to you and we would network. And you might have, you know, a bunch of little kind of mini contacts like that. But you got to play the cards you have. And for me, when I was 23 years old, I had hustle, I had enthusiasm, I had sincerity. Like I wasn't trying to BS people. I was just like, hey, look, here's here's what I, I don't know everything, but what I can do is hustle and bring you some deals. Like, what are you looking for? And so that I think that sincerity came through. And I, I met a guy who was a professor. He was a business professor at Clemson. And I, I just happened to audit a class, meaning I just kind of like showed up at this business class because I'd never taken any business before. And he started talking about real estate investing. And, and so I walked up to him after class as a 23-year-old and or 22 at that time and said, you know, I heard you talking about real estate. Like, I, I think I want to do that. Like, I'd like to learn more. Would you mind if I just met up with you sometime? And he said, yeah, come meet me tomorrow at 8 o'clock. I met him in, like in this parking lot. He got in his car and he rode me around for like three or four hours just showing me properties, talking to bankers. And I was like, is this what you do every day? He's like, yeah, this is pretty much what I do. <laughs> yeah, I ride around and talk to people. That one relationship he still loans me money. He, he's the one who kind of helped me. He loaned me the money on my first deal where we actually came up with the money. He has been a private lender ever since. He's introduced me to other people who loaned me money. Like that one, this like boldness of just going up to him and saying, hey, I, can I pick your brain? Can I ride around with you? Can I take you out of lunch? Like that, it started with that and it sort of grew from there. So Chad, a question I have is, so you're bird dogging for X number of years, when did you make the transition from the bird dog into the big dog, the guy who was actually buying these properties? <laughs> it was probably, let's see, I started in 2003 and it was about 2004 and five, yeah, two or three years after that. And we still we still were taking a little more risk than maybe some people are comfortable with. Like we, we used leverage. Like we would, for example, I think my first rental property, we put about 5,000 bucks down on a $110,000 house and we, we, we got seller financing where we basically, the, the seller was able to let us make payments to them instead of having to go out to the bank and get a loan. Like we just kind of got creative or hustling again, but you know, we, we did some deals like that and hindsight's 2020, like, you know, we, we were taking some risks because we, we were, because when you're leveraged, if you don't have a lot of capital up front, if you're not well capitalized, if things go bad, like if you have a bunch of vacancies, if, if you hit a downturn, which we hit, like we hit a downturn like three years later. Um, you can you can hit some rough times. We have a lot of payments going out and a lot of repairs going out. And so we did hit that time. Like we were highly leveraged going into 2007, 8, and 9 during the downturn, which is something scary for anybody getting into real estate. But the, the sort of the saving grace for us was, yeah, we put 5000 down on that property, but we also were saving a ton of money from all the flips we were doing and all the hustle. You know, I was still living like, you know, 20000 bucks a year or whatever it was. 
And, but we, we would make hundred thousand bucks a year sometimes. And, and so we would set aside all that money and we had a big cash cushion whenever the, you know, everything happened in, in those years. And so we, we had to get into it because we made some mistakes. We didn't learn well on some things. And, and so we, we got through that and, you know, the big dogs were kind of whimpering for a little bit. We were, we weren't exactly feeling like big dogs, but, uh, you know, the fact that we got through that and survived, I know other investors who had started at the same time I did, who are a little bit more aggressive, who, you know, like to drive that nicer car when they went and flipped their houses, they would, they would spend that 50 grand on a, on a car instead of just like putting it in the bank. And they, they were out of business, man. They didn't, they didn't survive. And so that was a big lesson for me that, you know, as you grow, it, it can be a really dangerous point when you use leverage, if you don't also like counter that with some cash flow and with some cash reserves. So these things that you talk about, such as sacrificing to build that cash cushion and to grow your inventory so quickly, you know, that exhibits a type of dedication that makes me believe this is a real passion of yours. But when you started down the path, was it simply just a job or did you have the vision to see it as a path towards financial independence and gaining freedom? And how's that path, you know, progressed over time? From the very beginning, I was like, man, this is, this is something that's going to get me, set me free. Like I'm not planning on this being a job. Um, but one thing I love about like podcasts like yours and like all this information that's out there in the fire community now, like I, I had this want to, and like, I was like, man, this is a cool tool. Real estate's awesome. I can buy and sell. I can buy rentals. Like I knew it was a tool, but like I went to the, I went to classes and seminars and I would see other people who were, and I would kind of borrow their goals. Like they would buy and sell a bunch of houses every year and they'd run their business in a certain way. But I learned that like after a few years, like my, my goals of freedom, like you were just talking about, weren't necessarily like aligned with what some of them were, were doing. Like they, they want to just build this big business and someday they would make enough money. And I didn't exactly know the mechanism on how it's going to happen. Whereas like in the fire community, we're like, Hey, you know, you got to save a, a you know, bunch of money. You have to do it by making more money. You got to do it by being conscious of your expenses. You got to invest that so savings into something, you know, it could be index funds. It could be real estate. It could be a side hustle. And, and the mechanism of it is much clearer now, like looking back, all I knew then was like, I want to be, have freedom. I want to have flexibility in my time. But I sort of took some wrong turns. Like I just bumped into a wall. Like 2007 and eight was one of them. Like my business partner and I looked up and we had just bought 50 properties in, in one year. Like I, you know, I got super good at buying deals. And then we like in December of that year, we were like, you know, we got to look at this. Like, what are we doing, man? This is like crazy. And we, my business partner and I sat down and we were like, all right, what does freedom mean to us? Like, what would we do? Like, if money didn't really matter right now, like, what kinds of things would we do? And like, my answer when I wrote that down was I would play pickup basketball for two and a half hours in the middle of the day because we had some really good games going on at our like local, some of the local football coaches and basketball coaches. And like, for me, it wasn't like, it didn't take much money to do that. And it didn't take much money to travel, although it took some money. Like it was more about the flexibility and the time. And, and I think I read the four hour work week, like right about the same time where he was talking about like leveraging side hustles and businesses and like doing what matters and traveling. And so like it is like kind of changed my mindset a little bit about the mechanism of saying, all right, you've got to be careful on the type of business you build, the type of investments you buy, the way you build them, because if just making money doesn't necessarily get you that freedom that you think you're setting out for, you've got to be very deliberate uh, in real estate, about the type of properties you buy, about how how much you grow, how fast you grow, the type of leverage you use, like all of those little specifics of your business matter when you're thinking about actually getting financial independence and having time to do what you want to do, which was for me was definitely the motivation from the start. So, Chad, I kind of want to just challenge what you just said in those last few sentences because 
you quickly glossed over how you bought 50 properties in one year, and then <laughs> less than a minute later, you go saying how you need to be careful about how fast you grow and about getting being careful with financing. So what was your criteria for these properties? I mean, were you making sure they met a certain standard, and how were you getting financing for all these properties? I can't imagine the same bank is going to give you uh, 50 separate loans for all these mortgages. Yeah, so like that, going back to like how I financed them in the beginning, like I, I very rarely used a bank loan. That's that's one answer to that. So like getting the financing came um, here. Just I'll list a few different ways off. I had properties where the seller would finance it. I mentioned that before. Yeah. It's a it's a strategy that's not real not real well known in like just kind of the everyday real estate circles. But I was able I learned how to negotiate with some sellers, particularly like older landlords who'd owned the property for a long time and. And I, w- I would be like the young guy coming in and buying it from them and they're transitioning out of being a landlord and they would finance it to me. So like a lot of the properties I bought that year, not, not all of them, but, you know, I'd say about 20 percent of them were like that category where the seller financed it to me. Um, the other ones I used uh, third party kind of private lenders. So I, I learned how to use uh, people could use their self-directed IRA or self-directed solo 401k and make hard money loans, basically, or private money loans. And so I had a group of people, that professor that I told you about earlier, he was one of my lenders and he would loan me money. And so like, that's, that's the, how I did it. But like, yes, you should, you should definitely push back on that because like, you know, why buy all those properties? Like I was flipping houses. We made a bunch of money on flips. A lot of those were we, like, we had one deal that year that we made 65,000 bucks on a flip and like where I bought it, we got a really good deal. It was like a short sale, pre-foreclosure kind of thing where we negotiated with the bank. They gave us a reduction on the mortgage. And then we, we had a buyer just like come along that we just had talked to. And we were able to sell it like bang, bang within like a few days and make 60,000 bucks. Like buy it, sell it, 60 grand in the bank. <laughs> and, and so like we had some crazy deals like that. But the, the issue was like I did have criteria. I had criteria for flips. We were also buying some rental properties. And we were also in with the rental properties in particular, um, I had some learning lessons because I, I sort of had the confidence of a hot market where I was like, all right, if I, could, if I buy this, I can get rid of it. You know, I can just sell it because people are buying it. And I just had that short term experience for the last three years. And the truth was, though, in 2008, 9 and 10, we bought some properties that were not in the best locations where we sort of over it. We, we got kind of because it was so competitive, because we were making a ton of offers. I got kind of sloppy on the cash flow where I might say, all right, yeah, it's probably only going to be 50 bucks in maintenance instead of the 75 or 100 that it ended up being. And oh, yeah, that's only going to be 15,000 in repairs, but really it ended up being 25,000 in repairs. And so I just I got moving so fast that I underestimated some things and I kind of ignored my own rules, basically, that you normally do when you're deliberate. So that's that was my mistake. I did a lot of good things. But I, I got moving so fast that I missed some of the, the core fundamentals and we got stuck with some of those properties. That's, that was the kind of the end of the game. So you found yourself in this tumultuous market. And oftentimes, at least in stocks, you know, we, when people are faced with a plummeting market, they just sell at the worst time. And now you're holding some properties that you probably don't even want to hold and the market's just getting flooded. Did you hold strong on those properties or did you just try and minimize your losses, uh, exposure and just get out of there? Yeah, we did both. Like we, um, so right off the bat, like the end of 2007, when we realized, all right, man, this is, we, we like, we hustled too much. Um, we just started on some of the properties. We said, these, we just got to sell these. And so like we had a um, couple multi-unit properties that would have been good deals for somebody, but like we just didn't have enough capital and staying power to keep these properties. So 
we put them on the market in 2008, found buyers. I mean, again, like super just hustle, hustle, hustle. Every day, as hard as I was hustling to buy properties, I was out there hustling to try to either sell them or rent them or, you know, to make sure we were okay. And so we we sold sold a big chunk. Whatever we could, we could, we'd sell. But some of them we had overpaid for them. We just paid too much. And so like if you you owed, if you owe a hundred thousand bucks on a property and um, now if you were to try to just sell it, it might be like seventy thousand bucks or eighty thousand bucks is what you could sell it for or net. Mm-hmm you know, all right, can you, you just going to take the hit or are you just going to rent it out? And, and some of those would cash flow. Okay. So they were, um, we would just, so the plan was, all right, let's just rent them out. Let's just, let's get them, let's get some income coming in. And so we, we kind of had a trial by fire of just like figuring out how to be good landlords and figuring out how to generate income. And a lot of the systems that I, ironically that I use today, like we were so diligent about building really good systems and being efficient as landlords and getting good at it and studying other people you know, like when I went on a trip, like fast forward to 2008, 17 and 18, when I kind of was able to step back from the business and had income coming in, a lot of the systems I built in 2007, 8, 9, like hustling and just having to do that were what sort of allowed me to step back from the business later on and not have to be as involved because we, I just, I was doing everything then and my business partner was and we were able to build it up and have checklists and we eventually hired some people to do a lot of the stuff that we were doing. So, you know, sometimes you always hear like, out of the recessions, a lot of good businesses like are built and come about. And I really feel like that for us too, like, because there's some luck involved, you know, just like some things that went well for us. And, you know, you just, you kind of just say thank you for those. But then the other things where we hustled and we learned and we built relationships with people, um, you know, a lot of those private lenders that I talked about, like at the same time, they were in the, the markets going crazy and the stock market's going down by 50%. Like they didn't want to be in the stock market, a bunch of them. A lot of people were like, Hey man, I don't, I don't want to mess with all that. And here I was paying them 6% interest and I never missed a payment. I've got rent coming in so I can pay them for them. Like that's, that's like pretty solid. You know, the interest rates are half percent on a CD and here I am paying them 6% or 7% in some cases. So like I had a really good relationship with those people who loaned me money and partnered with me and I got good at landlording. We got good at landlording. And so that all sort of fit together. And that's really what helped us get out of that, that challenging time. So for the new investor who kind of wants to get started with this, I feel like for you, you've been in the game for so long that you kind of just forget some of those nitty gritty things because to a new person, they're probably terrified of landlording and you're landlording. Yeah. You said upwards of like it was around 90 properties between you and your business partner at one point, right? So I mean, how time intensive are these properties to manage? Are you going to plunge the toilet at these properties five times a week? Like just what does this look like on a granular level? Is this a lot of time commitment? Is this like 40, 80 hours a week, 10 hours a week? What are we looking at here? So I'm going to make people feel better out there because like I am not handy like at all. Like, man, if, if <laughs> and, and it's, it's sort of been in my benefit. Like if you ask me to cut a straight line with like a saw or if you ask me to like do anything more with a remodel other than just like knocking a wall down or something like I, I could probably do that with a sledgehammer, but that's, that's about <laughs> it. Like I can just carry stuff. Being a landlord is really, here, here's the skill you need to have. You do need to have some knowledge of how properties work. And so upfront, when you start becoming a landlord and owning property, you've got some learning to do. Like th- this is a side hustle. This isn't like a completely passive investment. Upfront, you've got you've to gain some knowledge. But here's like the positive of that. If you can get over that barrier to entry of knowledge and of kind of learning how to do it, over the long run, like I'll just give you a specific example. Like we we do own 90 properties and we have some some management infrastructure that like some other people help manage that for us. But like I probably spent over the last two years about on the management side of things an hour or two per week, like taking care of my portion of that. And and so like I have other people um, going out and showing properties. I have other people taking maintenance calls. 
have other people like actually doing the work. Like I don't, you know, I showed up at, when I got back into from the U S from Ecuador, I did show up one time when somebody was working there just to kind of check things out and look, inspect things. But like, I don't go there. I just, I make a phone call. And I, I remember specifically in 2009, like I, I took a little mini retirement to my wife and I did before we had kids. We went down to South America, went to Peru and lived there. And I learned to speak Spanish and we went to Chile and Argentina, like the Southern Patagonia region. And I specifically remember like we were in this little tiny like internet cafe and I had my little laptop with me and I saw an email that like the hot water heater had broken. I was like, all right, all right we got to <laughs> figure this thing out. And so I got on Skype for like 17 cents a minute at that time. I called the plumber. It took like three minutes. I said, hey, there's a hot water heater out of this apartment. Can you take care of that for me? Can you send me some pictures when you're done? Bam, bam, three minutes, close the laptop, put it in my backpack. And we went and like toured a penguin colony like five minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so like that, that to me is what landlording is about. Yes, there's always like, there's, a, there's some little two or three minute things you got to like respond to text here and there. But like the business I try to put forward is not, not to go at least over the long run, not to do all the work yourself, not to try to, if you want to do some handyman stuff yourself and to save a little bit of money early on, like that's fine. But over the long run, you need to buy rental properties that can afford to pay people to manage it, to pay people to do the repairs. And you need to have enough cash flow to cover all of that. Because if you don't, it's not really a business. It's just a hobby. It's just like, it's just something that you're like contributing your free labor to, as opposed to actually having a business that has a bottom line that you can pay employees or pay contractors to do all that stuff. And so that's, that was something we got right. Like we always ran the numbers as if we weren't going to um, do any work ourselves. We're always going to pay people to do it. And so that's allowed us to um, now like hire people to do all this stuff so that we're not having to spend all our time on it. So Chad, you said one to two hours per week managing properties last year. You're making Tim Ferriss look like a chump. <laughs> First of all. <laughs> yeah. Second of all, so I want to kind of dive into the flipping houses because I think rental properties is something that's talked about pretty commonly in the FI arena. But flipping houses is not as commonly talked about. And it seems like you have a ton of experience doing that. And being someone who says they can't cut in a straight line with a saw, how do you go about finding these deals and actually putting in the work? And how do you go about finding these contractors who are reliable and actually show up and do the work? I know it's kind of a loaded question, but I just love for you to just dive in. I love that question because whether you're buying rental properties or flips, like the I think the most challenging part of the real estate business is actually getting that property at a good price. Like get it, finding a good deal. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever looked at real estate, but that's, that's, that's the feedback I get from a lot of people. And I realized when I was looking for properties all the time, like that was what I concentrated most of my time on. It's like, how can I go out and find these deals? And so here's a, just a couple tips on, on how you can make that work. That same professor I told you about earlier, who was sort of a mentor for me early on, like when I started riding around with him and he would tell me like stories and give me little, you know, aphorisms. And he would say, you know, Chad, if you want to find good deals, if you want to go find good real estate deals, you've got to find good dogs with fleas. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? You know, what's he talking about here? Like good dogs with fleas. And he's like, he's like, all right, what I mean, Chad, is like you want a good property that could be good, but it needs to have fleas. It needs to have some problem that makes everybody else turn and run the other direction. That's what you need to do. But then you, the second thing you need to do is you need to get really good at cleaning fleas <laughs> off of dogs. And that's where like the fix up and or and being able to remodel a property or understand what can be done. So just let me give you a couple examples. Like there's some certain people who when they hear the word mold, like you guys, if I if I told you, hey, I've got this house and I think it's worth two hundred thousand bucks, it's full of mold, man. I mean, the whole freaking <laughs> house is like 
got mold everywhere. Um, you guys want to buy it? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> what would you say? Turn and run the other way, right? Like that. And so, like you know, I'm not saying like mold is pretty tricky. I mean, like it, it's not an easy thing to solve. But if you were going to be a real estate investor and flip houses, because everybody responds that way about mold, wouldn't you want to figure out how to solve it? Like, wouldn't you want to figure out? Because in reality, like you could rip out every piece of sheetrock in an entire house. Like you could go in sheetrock's the wall for people who are like even more basic than I am about remodeling houses. Like sheetrock's the, the material on the walls. Like you could go out and cut out and pay somebody to cut out every piece of sheetrock. So you just had like the skeleton of a house, just the, the wood. And then you could hire somebody to come in and like just basically annihilate everything in that house, like with cleaning and I don't know what kind of chemicals <laughs> they use, you know, probably not earth friendly, that's for sure. But they would like get rid of that. They could get rid of the mold and put like a tent around that house. Yeah, it would cost money, but like there's some way to solve that kind of problem. The same with asbestos, the same with some of these other things that like people turn around and like, oh man, that's scary. And so like, if, and so that those are just very specific examples. But if you're going to be somebody who finds houses to flip and finds good deals, you need to look at, just start making a list of things that will scare everybody else off those fleas and then try to find them. And, and so that's how you like, you can build your entire like marketing part of your business to find properties around those kinds of problems. For example, like I, I used to send out and I do this every once in a while too. Like a lot of people are scared of evictions. Like if you told them, Hey, you're going to be a landlord and you're going to have to like deal with an evicting a tenant and how awful that's going to be. Well, like I used to do marketing campaigns where I'd send letters to everybody in my town, my, my area, who was a landlord who was evicting a tenant at that time. It's a public record. Like you can go up to the local courthouse and find out all of these landlords who are, who just have a tenant that is not paying. Can you imagine like if you send 20 landlords letters who are, who are in the middle of evicting a tenant, it's like how many of them are going to be kind of pissed off and upset about this real estate thing? But I don't want to, I just want to get rid of this property. Forget this. And so like, that's a flea. Evictions are a flea. Mold's a flea pre-foreclosures or flea. Some of them, you know, you know, kind of tougher than others. And you might say, I don't want to deal with foreclosures. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of situations that might not be your thing. And that's fine. But you still got to figure out uh, something other than just finding the regular old listings on Zillow and Realtor.com and all that. If you, if you just stick with those, like in 2008, 9 and 10, there were some deals on the MLS and there was a ton. I mean, just because there's so many properties out there, but in a more normal market like we're in right now, you're not going to be able to find deals just looking on Zillow. Like you're going to have 150 people as soon as that property goes on the market are going to be looking at it the same way you are. They're going to make an offer on it. You've got to start finding properties that nobody else is really looking at. And that's where the fleas on dogs kind of trick comes in. You've got to figure out like little ways to build a network, to find find little ways to send letters to people, you know, anything like that. And I, I did a lot of that. Like, and a lot of it's just experimenting and it changes every couple of years. And so, you know, we've bought properties at tax lien sales where the people didn't pay their taxes and we bought properties that way. We bought foreclosures and did negotiated short sales with banks. We bought houses with mold. We bought houses with a bunch <laughs> of rats in them. I mean, like you name it, like we've kind of tried it and some of it we got burned on, but other times we learned how to do something that other people didn't know how to do. So Chad, you talked about what fleas to look for, but how do you find the terminators? How do you know which guys are going to come in and actually do the job? They're not going to overcharge you. They're not going to do a shoddy job. They're actually going to come in and do the work right. Yeah. Well, I, I sort of learned the hard way up front. I'll be honest. Um, the very first house I flipped, we ended up hiring three different painters. We hired two different carpet installers. And like the, the first painter we hired, like he did the, we didn't really know what a good paint job was. And so he came in and like slapped like sheetrock mud on the wall and did all. And we're like, we finally realized like, man, this sucks. Like this is not a good painting job. And we told the guy like, this is not good. You got to redo all this. 
apparently he was like high on some kind of drug and he started like knocking holes in our walls with a ladder and like got pissed off. And so I'm, I'm hoping maybe I'm scaring everybody off ever doing real estate again in their lives. But like, so the thing we learned though, like, so that was, that was our like, Oh my God, like, what are we, what are we doing here? Is that you, you've got to go borrow like good relationships from other people. Like, and, and so I'm going to go back to networking. Like I talked about in the beginning, like, I, I know that's like, sort of a cliche kind of conversation, but like you have got to build a network of other like investors in your area. Like you just got to do it. Like if, if you don't have a relationship with other landlords, with other fix and flip people, with other contractors, you're right. I mean, you will get eaten alive because like we don't, we don't know what we don't know. Like we, we have no way of judging like, is this person good? Like it's, it's really hard. Like I'm not good at like judging character right off the bat. I think I am, but then I trust somebody who's kind of a scam artist and they just do it. And so what I did was we started just asking other investors. Like we have a local investor club in the upstate of South Carolina where I am. And, you know, I would just say, have you used somebody? Have you actually used somebody where you started, you finished and they just didn't screw you over. And I would, I would start borrowing some of those contractors from other people. And to this day, like we've, you know, some of them go, you know, they go bad, things happen in their life, but like we've had some long-term relationships with people who came off of referrals. That's just, just bottom line. And, and so I, I think that's, that's not a shortcut. Like there's no way to get around it, but you can't, I mean, so going back to me, like I'm not a like fix it kind of person. Like I, I can make a really good punch list, like meaning I can look at something and now I can say that needs to be done. That needs to be done. That I have the vision for what the house is going to be, but like, I don't know how to install the hot water heater. I could figure it out at this point, but when I first started, I didn't know, how, I didn't know how to paint. I didn't know how to do all this other stuff. A lot of you are probably in the same boat who are listening to this. And so you're gonna have to like have YouTube on the ready all the time and like do a bunch of YouTube videos. Like how do you, how should this contractor be doing this hot water heater? And like maybe in your first year or so, you just go over and watch the contractor, like just watch them, just ask questions. Like, and you know, that's an education, right? Like you're, you're, you're not going to college, but you're going to like the school of like real life. Here's a contractor fixing my hot water heater and you just ask questions. And, and so that's, that's how you learn, but you you avoid the biggest mistakes by networking and building some relationships, a kind of a small mastermind of people that you can ask for, for referrals. What I kept noticing as you were talking was efficiency. That's the word that kept coming to mind. I mean, you're talking about using someone else's experience to find a good contractor through this referral process, and then you're getting free handyman education just by tagging along and watching what they do for work you're already paying for. And efficiency to me is, you know, that's a great segue into another real estate topic that I know you love. Huge fan of house hacking. Because, you know, a lot of the listeners are in that younger crowd who are just renting. But then you have this other group of people who are combining their homestead with the rental market and finding some huge efficiencies. So I'm going to give you like 20 bucks after the call because you like set me up with my, like, this is my grandstand, man. Like it, when somebody asks me about house hacking, like my eyes light up. I'm like, you got to be house hacking, man. You got to be doing this. So like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I appreciate you setting me up like that, man. But, you know, I've talked about like all these properties and flipping houses and doing 50 deals a year. Like, I hope I hadn't turned a lot of people off who like aren't interested in that kind of thing. Because really like my heart and soul in real estate is, and I believe this, like for a lot of people, like going out and buying, having 20 units is like 20 rental units is not their thing like that. And that's totally cool, you know, but I think almost everybody, like if I could talk to every like 18 to 22 year old and say, all right, listen here, like when you get into the real world and you get your job and you rent for a little bit and you decide to go buy a house, like you're going to face a fork in the road where you can decide to go get that house, that single family house, that 2000 square foot big house, like bigger than anything you've ever lived in and, you know, get the American dream. Or you can take the other fork in the road where you actually buy a, a house 
that is financially smarter and actually produces income for you, AKA a house hack. And so like a house hack, basically my definition of a house hack is anything you can do with your residents to generate extra income. And that could be from like renting your basement apartment. It could be renting out spare bedrooms. Um, I have a friend, you know, guy on fire. He's a blogger as well. He, he rented out bedrooms in Washington, DC, like in his first house, 23 years old, right out of college, you know, bought a house with an FHA loan, small down payment. And then he rented out his spare bedrooms to his old college buddies who he, he just graduated from college, you know, and he just roomed with these guys. And so like he just rented spare bedrooms to his friends and that basically paid all of his mortgage payment, his taxes and insurance. So just like juxtapose those two situations. Here's, you know, Drew guy on fire who's got like almost zero mortgage payment, 23 years old, like buying a house in Washington, D.C., and then you've got the other path that Drew could have taken. He could have gone and bought like the house and just lived in it. And, you know, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how like success looks. And like the difference between those two financial decisions of house hacking and not house hacking, like 20 years later, even if you never did another rental property again, even if you just looked at it as how much it cost you in housing payment is enormous. Like you, everybody listening to this is probably big on like future value of money and time value of money. Like just take a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks difference per month for the next three or four years of your life when you're in your twenties and say like, I could have saved a thousand bucks a month and invested that versus, you know, if I would have house act and, or I just did this other route where I was paid a 1500 bucks a month in mortgage payment. And now like you're way behind. So like house hacking is awesome for that reason, but it's also a really good gateway to getting like one or two rental properties because you can move out of that property later on, keep it as a rental and have a little small, nice uh, rental portfolio. That's not, we don't have to go do all those crazy acquisition things I was just talking about. Like you don't have to be the person finding all the fleas. Like you just found a one or two house hacks and kept them. And then you moved on with your life and did something else after that. Okay, so I got to push back a little bit because you mentioned grabbing every 20-year-old out there and just preaching the good word of house hacking to them. And I mean, they probably have roommates now or just got out of college where this was a normal thing. But then you have this sector of people out there who they get a little older, they start a family, you know, they no longer want to be tiptoeing in at night, dancing in the hallway um, as you wait for them to get out of the bathroom so you can go pee or having to overlook somebody's dirty dishes. And I know that there's duplexes out there but then those can be so expensive. So are these all empty excuses or are these valid concerns when you talk about house hacking at a later point in life? You can find some good quality of life places to live even next to like living next to your tenants. Like, I, I met some awesome people. Like when we lived in a fourplex, my wife and I got married and when we, the first place we lived was that fourplex and I was in unit number two. We had this awesome international couple from who were PhD students from China who just need it on a budget, you know, they're just going to school, they need to live somewhere like, man, we've never met them like this interesting people. And they told us stories about where they came from. And another couple from Turkey, like we had like kind of the international row there. And for me, like being traveling, I wasn't getting to travel at that point. But man, I got to meet people from all over the world. And, and so like, if, if you if you're willing to live there, like if you just use the criteria, like, all right, I want to make it sure it's basic, as long as I'm okay living there, and it's got some a good park nearby, or whatever is kind of important to you, you'll attract people who are decent tenants or good people and you and you can screen for the people who are going to be bad payers and who aren't going to treat your property well and you actually might become really good friends with these people i, I think that's something that's missed it's not always horror stories for every little horror story you have in, as a landlord there are just a ton of awesome people because think of all the great people who need a house to live and who need to rent and you're, you're going to be a landlord like providing a service to those people 
All right, Chad, so for someone who's my age or maybe a little bit older, they're in their 20s, they're in their 30s, how can they actually get started investing in real estate and retiring early? Yeah, I would just encourage people I mean, at any age. Like I, I mentioned 20s and 30s because like I'm just adamant like, man, if you, just the math is against you if you don't like just th- consider this at least for like five to 10 years of your life. But but really, like, it kind of gets to a bigger theme of just being flexible with your housing because housing is like, if you look at the statistics, I think is about a third of the average budget for any of us. And so like, if, if nothing else, even if you're not a real estate investor, you got to think outside the box with your housing, because if you want to save money, if you want to achieve financial independence, if you want to stay flexible after you already reach FI, being flexible with your housing and, and being creative with it is, is, is kind of like a superpower. I mean, it really is. And we've done things like we, we went to Ecuador for 17 months and we used global arbitrage, basically. Like we, we figured out like, man, we could go live in this awesome neighborhood. If you were in like a big city in the US, this would be like a $3,000 rental, like this kind of location. And we rent it, rent it all in, including furnishings and electricity and everything for 600 bucks a month. <laughs> so that like house hacking specifically means what we just talked about. But if you, I'm just encouraging everybody to think about your housing a little bit differently. Think outside the box because it's, it's sort of a gateway to you having the flexibility that you want you know, later on in life. All right, Chad. So you're 38 years old now. It seems like you got your whole life figured out. You're financially independent by any standard. So what does the rest of your life look like? Like, what are your goals? What are your dreams? And what are your passions? Yeah, that's, I love that question. Um, in some ways, like, I don't know. but And I, and I kind of like that. Like, I, I really, I've been kind of a go-getter with specific goals. Like, financial independence was like, I told you earlier, when I first started, I knew I wanted financial independence. Like, it was just, I didn't know how to define it, but like, I knew I wanted it. And, and so now that I'm, I'm sort of just like pinching myself a little bit, just be, like the whole time I was in Ecuador for 17 months and living off rental income and our families, my kids are going to school there. I'm just like, this is awesome. But part of the theme was just getting that freedom and getting that flexibility, first of all, to try to figure out like, all right, what do I want to do? And travel was important for us. Spending time with the family was important. Um, but the things on my mind now that I'm just kind of playing around with and I'm not certain about it is like, you know, what, what do I have to give next? Because I, I think a big part of getting financial independence and freeing up your time is not just sitting around drinking a pina colada. Although if you want to do that for a year or two, that's cool. <laughs> like to me, it's about like, what, what are the unique gifts that you have that you're put on this earth and you've got these gifts in your skill set, And like, how are you going to use that to like to do something big? Like what I want to, I want to make an impact. Like I want to influence people positively. I want to inspire people. And I don't know if that means like, just you know, people with my blog at Coach Carson and people getting inspired and reading it that way. I hope that's part of it. Um, I don't know if it's like in my local community, getting more involved with urban planning. Like I'm really interested in, as a real estate investor, I kind of just off the side got interested in like, why do why are neighborhoods designed the way they are? And why, why don't we have bike paths and walkable paths in these suburban Southern towns where I live? Like how, how come you have to get in your car to go everywhere, even though it's a quarter mile away? And so like I start, I'm just interested in some of these like just off the wall kind of stuff. But like now that I have a little bit more time and anything to think about it is like, I think that's what I, I want to go try to help that. And so I started, I helped start a nonprofit in my town to build like trails in Clemson, South Carolina, where I am. And, and so like, that's the kind of stuff I'm playing around with is like, how can I make an impact while also making an impact on my kids, which is they're seven and five and they're going to be 18 before I know it and doing their own thing. Like we were all talking about. And so I want to make sure I'm actually there and can, they can say, yeah, I've talked to dad about everything that went on throughout my life. And I was, he was there and he was present and wasn't off at some job, like, you know, never, never around. Man, well, it just sounds like you got it all figured out and you were doing so many of the right things. But Chad, I kind of want to shift gears because I know that you just recently published your book, 
retire early with real estate. So I'd love if you could just talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. So it's, this is something new for me. Like as a, as a new author, published it through uh, Bigger Pockets, who's like a, the big real estate site online and titles Retire Early with Real Estate. And it's, it's basically a, a lot of the philosophy of FIRE that we all appreciate of like, you know, what finding the place that's enough for you and like, what do you really want to do with your life? And I'm just, I'm trying to like combine the real estate investing, Bigger Pockets world and the financial independence world and the, and everything that we talk about here. And so it's a strategy guide. It's like, yeah, here's where you're trying to go. Here's what you're trying to accomplish. Here's the top of the mountain of financial independence. And then I, I show a, a ton of case studies and examples of different strategies you can use, including house hacking, including uh, some other things like Burr, like the Burr strategy and buy and hold rentals and all these things that you don't have to know what they mean at this point. But it just the point is like there's some really cool strategies you can use once you get into real estate to basically have a plan to retire maybe 10, 12 years is kind of a, a good number. If you really want to get aggressive with it, five years. And so I show examples of how you do that. And I, I got to interview like 24 people and kind of pick up their brains and talk to them about their stories so that it wasn't just my story. It was showing a lot of different people in different cities, different situations and what they did and how they did it. So that was sort of the book in a nutshell. It's been a lot of fun to, to write it and to, to get it out there. Well, that's awesome, Chad. But for people who want to interact with you on a more personal level, is there any way they can reach you online? Yes. My personal website is coachcarson.com. Um, that's where I hang out and I write a newsletter. So I, I interact with a lot of people that way. That's kind of my easiest way for people to reach out to me. Um, I'm also, you know, I do social media. I'm figuring out Instagram. That's kind of my new, my new gig lately. I just, I don't have to just scroll through my Facebook feed and figure out any of that kind of stuff. But I am on Facebook and I'm on Twitter a good bit, chatting with a lot of other bloggers and, and Instagram as well. So if you, if you look up Coach Carson on any of those, or if you just go to coachcarson.com, uh, I'd be happy to connect with anyone who wants to reach out to me. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Chad, and we are so appreciative that you came on and just kind of crushed this whole real estate thing. So hopefully some of our listeners are a little less intimidated and they can go find some dogs and some fleas. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast. Hey, guys. You guys are doing awesome, man. I love this podcast and love what you're doing. I really appreciate it and I'm honored to be a guest on it. So thank you. So that was Coach Carson. And if you guys are not feeling like you should go buy a rental property right now, you probably weren't listening. <laughs> Yeah, but even if you don't want to go out and buy rental today, I think it was awesome how he gave you that kind of entry into the market. He just started going out and finding deals for other people as a bird dog, as he called it. Yeah, bird dog to the big dog. That's what I like to say. <laughs> now the guy's 90 <laughs> rental properties, but he started out just scoping for that guy, that professor that he met in college. And something that he really stressed was that, like, use your network, leverage the people you know. If you're the guy who buys real estate, People come to you with deals. And a lot of times we hear episodes like this and we think, oh, well, this guy must have had like the perfect storm happen for him. But that's not the case. He went through the downturn. He was over leveraged. He saw some, you know, bad times in the market and still came through on the other side by doing some smart decisions and building that cash cushion he talked about. And finding those dogs with fleas. I mean, <laughs> Chad, Chad was the exterminator. And he found efficiencies in everything he done. Like you mentioned before, leveraging that community for referrals. But then uh, a hack I've never heard anybody talk about, when you schedule that handyman work, just go by and watch it. It's way better than watching YouTube videos at home. And something I want to re-highlight, because Chad said like this is his number one tip for people in their 20s. Even if you're in your 30s, I kind of challenged him on that, is house hacking. Having someone else pay your mortgage, because that's most of Americans' biggest line item. And if you can get that right... 
you don't have to cut as much in other areas. And he gave you a lot of different options for house hacking. There's the having kind of a roommate situation. There's duplexes. And then there's just living in the house, doing the remodels while you're there, getting some tax efficiencies, and then selling it to someone. So there's a, there's a house hack for everyone. All right, Justin, for the listeners out there, they have the skills now, they have the expertise and the knowledge that Coach Carson just dropped on them. What is the call to action for this episode? This is an easy one, Cody. For this episode and all the work that Coach Carson's done, we've put this up on a T-ball for you. So you got the tools, you've got the skills, you've got the resources. Now just get out there, start looking for deals, and go find your first rental. Awesome call to action, Justin. So get out there and just do it. And if you guys like what you heard today, Justin and I would love if you could connect with us. So that's either through the Facebook group or through our voicemail feature on the website. We just want to hear from you, the community. Did you like this episode? Did you hate this episode? No matter what, just tell us what you thought. And if you want to follow up with more of those tips that Coach Carson gave you today, you can find those in our show notes at thefyshow.com slash coach. And here comes the best part of the episode. If you're still hanging around, you are in luck. Because Coach Carson was so generous to donate us three copies of his book, Retire Early with Real Estate. So Justin and I, we have two physical copies and one Kindle copy. And we are going to be doing a live drawing in our Facebook group for a chance to win these books. So if you're not already a part of the Facebook group, make sure to visit thefyshow.com slash community to join. And so for those two physical books, we're going to be doing a rating and review giveaway. So anyone who leaves a rating and review, you automatically get entered into a drawing. And those will be for the two physical books. Just make sure to either screenshot the username you left it under or send an email to contact at thefyshow.com to tell us what username you left it under. Because who knows, maybe you made your Apple ID back when you were 15 and it's cool guy 15 or pretty girl 12. And we don't know who you are. So just make sure to identify yourself so that we can get you that copy. And for that one Kindle online version that we have, we're actually going to be doing a Twitter giveaway just to get more engagement and talk to you guys because Twitter is an awesome platform to engage with us in the community. So our Twitter handle is at the Show guys. Make sure to follow us on there. And yeah, just look out for that tweet and make sure to interact with it and you will be automatically entered into that drawing. And this contest will end two weeks from now, so November 6th. And Justin and I will do the Facebook Live on November 7th. And thanks again so much for listening. It is truly this community that makes Justin and I put in all the hours to find the guests, edit the episodes, and just deliver this awesome content. So thank you so much. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss additional episodes. So that's it from me. See you next week.